This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture, and today I'm here with MJ Rimsha Plabloska, who wrote History Comes Alive, Public History and Popular Culture in the 1970s. MJ, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. So I'm wondering if you can start by talking a bit about how you came to write this book, how you became interested in this topic. Well, this started out as a dissertation about the Bicentennial, uh, which would have been many years ago, which would have been fine. But as I kept on looking at sort of case studies of historical programming that happened around the Bicentennial, I I started seeing patterns that this looked to me to be significantly different than, you know, what a museum or what a historical society or what an oral history project or even a television show would have looked like before. So very quickly, I stopped thinking about the Bicentennial as, or maybe not very quickly, um, but quickly enough, I stopped thinking about the Bicentennial as the sort of central case study and thought about it more as a kind of motif and as an opportunity to look at history across popular and public registers writ large. The Bicentennial is still in there, but I was actually looking at the dissertation prospectus the other day because I was moving things from one computer to another and I was looking at it and reading it and thinking to myself, wow, this would have been really boring. (laughs) So, um, so you sort of break this into a number of different um, categories and how we sort of think and look at history. And so I'm wondering before we sort of get into talking about television and um, different different sort of public and popular cultural ways we looked at history, if you could sort of talk a little bit about that shift in thinking about history and what history sort of meant in um, popular culture and culturally before we got to sort of the bicentennial. Right. Well, so the central, well, maybe the biggest argument of the book is that when we think about how we, how history is both sort of produced, but also how we engage with history, we need to think more about form. Um, So it's not only that, we think about what is being what is being said, but also how it's being said and how people are relating to it. So the argument that I make in the book is that in the nineteen in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, you see this sort of massive shift where we're both producing or agents of history, whether that's popular agents or sort of more explicitly pedagogical public agents, are producing history, um, and we're thinking about history in much more sort of immersive, interactive ways. 
So one, one way I sometimes tell people, um, the, the sort of most interesting way that I can tell people is that before the 1970s, it would have been impossible to have a storyline where someone has a daydream that they're their own ancestor. That seems to me to be like a very, at this point, a very familiar trope. We're very used to wanting to know how people in the past felt, what it would have been like to be people in the past, having that kind of emotional connection with them. That's the way that we expect to engage with history. And that's reflected in TV shows and museum exhibits, um, the kind of expectations that we hold from, from historical, from historical popular culture, but that wasn't the case until this period. So that, that, but thinking about that also opens up this kind of wider possibility, which is that, okay, so if this is always changing, what does that mean? Why is it important to think about this? And I say that the reason it's important to think about it is because that changes very much the kind of expectations we have um, from history that we need to always be paying attention to form because it is always changing. Your first chapter, you look at television and how television sort of changes between the 1950s and the 1970s and how television um, history is portrayed to that television audience. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about those different that changes and in television um, history or how television talks about history. Right. So television is my first case study. Um, and it's, in some ways, it's the one where the change is the most overt because in the 1950s and the 1960s, first of all, you don't have that much history on television. And what you do have looks really different. So on one hand, you have shows like You Are There, which is Walter Cronkite's news show, which sets, sends reporters back to, you know, say, the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the end of the Civil War. Um, there's shows, uh, for example, Profiles and Courage does a lot of the same thing. It's an anthology show about history. These shows are really pedagogical. So what they're up to is sort of teaching you about great events, um, which makes sense with how history is being done across sort of other other arenas during that period as well. But they also, they, they create a distance. Um, so with You Are There, for example... Walter Cronkite's always there in between you and you and the historical personage. It's TV that's showing you TV that's showing you the distance um, and TV that's sort of standing between the viewer and the historical event. They're not placed directly into it. They're kind of given an eye eye onto what's happening. The other kind of TV show that you see in the 50s and 60s, which was really surprising, or the, the other place where history pops up, which was really surprising to me, was on science fiction shows. So Twilight Zone, for example, has several episodes where either, either protagonists are traveling back into the past because they want to change things, and doing so, they mess things up. So it's sort of, you know, the butterfly effect story. Um, or they get trapped in the past and it's a kind of scary, terrible place where they're in physical danger. And I argue that even though that doesn't look the same way as a show like you are there, it's doing a lot of the same things. It's creating distance. So the, the, in these shows, history is always kind of a physically bounded place that you have to get to with time machine or you don't just sort of wander in and wander out. Um, that physical distance is reinforced in different ways as well. It's also, again, not uh, the way that the viewer is placed into the story is 
is also as from the perspective of as an observer, um, they're not asked to identify with, to learn about the persona of any of the people in the show. The cautionary tale, it's a, and they're both kind of cautionary tales. They say history is great to learn from. It's important as foundation, but really we should be thinking about the present and the future. And ironically, in a lot of these, in a lot of the sort of Twilight Zone type shows, and I read about a couple of these, the people who do stop sort of work to tamper with the past, um, and then in the end, they learn their lesson. They're like, okay, I'm going to stay in the present from now on. And that seems to be the overall message that these shows are kind of sending to their viewers. Stay in the present. The present's cool. History is fine. You can look at it, and TV can actually help you do that, but it's not where it's at. So now in the 70s, things are really different. There's a lot more history on TV. So even just just going off the top of my head um, or the top of anyone's head, you have the Happy Days, you have um, the Waltons, you have Little House on the Prairie, you have all these shows that are about, they're about history um, or use history as a motif. Even TV shows that don't explicitly use history have historical storylines. So something like The Brady Bunch, for example, um, there's a lot of sort of going to museums. There's this weird plot line where they go to they go to a ghost town and they get imprisoned by I think like the ghost of a miner. Um, but the other really significant thing that happens in the 1970s, of course, is the miniseries. And the miniseries that I'm thinking of is Roots. Um, and there, across all these shows, so across shows like Roots, especially, um, but even shows like Little House on the Prairie and The Waltons, you're shown historical personages that are meant to elicit emotions that you're supposed to identify with, that you're supposed to feel really strongly about the, you know, their inner lives. Um, and that, again, is a really, really marked difference. So the reason that that's the first chapter is it sets up that difference really, really well. Right. I found it really interesting and it did help me as well. I was thinking back to watching Little House on the Prairie or Roots or the Waltons and all of those and how, um, how history, I grew up in Minnesota. And so Little House on the Prairie was this really, like there was a parallel there too for thinking about how history was portrayed as versus how we are, especially growing up taught history in Mm -hmm. Minnesota, you know, and taught what was going on during that time. So I found that really helpful to sort of start to think about those things. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, what were you going to say? Oh, I don't remember at this point. I think I think it was something that we tend to people tend to remember Little House on the Prairie, um, the TV show, and the Waltons as the TV show is very kind of saccharine and sweet. Um, they're really not. They're very kind of dark episodes, um, or at least some of them, and they do a, they're, they're they're relevance TV. So in the same way that shows like Mary Tyler Moore or All in the Family are kind of grappling with the issues of the day. Something that those shows are doing, they're they're doing that too, and then just sending them to the past. So that's one way that people relate to history much, you know, in in a different way, because you have a show like Little House on the Prairie having like, you know, a sexism storyline or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I think you talked about the sort of the opiate addiction storyline in Little House, and I clearly remember that. And, you know, that connection. So you move from television to talking about how um, during the Nixon presidency, there was this real push for planning this federal bicentennial and how that sort of became a problem and problematic. So can you talk a bit about that sort of move, this plan to um, creating one large bicentennial and um, what happened with that, um, that plan? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so here's another here's another opportunity to talk about forms and the forms that different expressions of the past take. So, right, the bicentennial and the bicentennial um, of the American Revolution in 1976, uh, they actually began planning for it in 1966. So you end up having three really different uh, presidential administrations involved: Johnson at the beginning, then Nixon, and then it ends with Ford. Um, although Nixon, of course, assumed that his would be the bicentennial, but it didn't work out for him in that way. So when you think about a big national commemoration, or at least when people were thinking about this in the 1960s, they assumed this sort of large central event, um, maybe a World's Fair, because that's what had been done for 1876 in Philadelphia. Um, there had been a World's Fair in 1964. So Right away, federal planners think to themselves, okay, how are we going to make this big centralized centralized celebration a World's Fair? For Johnson, for, for the Johnson administration, what that means actually is an opportunity for sort of infrastructure improvements. So right away, he sees the World's Fair as kind of part and parcel of great society, um, as a part of a model cities program. So, you know, whatever city gets the World's Fair will also get an infusion of funding. Um, it'll be a chance to sort of think about the future, um, think about what how, what what's been accomplished, but also the way that the principles of the American Revolution can can move forward. There's a tiny tinge of anti-communism in there too at the very beginning in the '60s um, because you have a lot of the first proponents um, and the first planners saying things like, well, you know, the revolution is an American concept and we need to make sure the rest of the world remembers that um, because, of course, there are all these other revolutions going on that that they wanted to think about. Um, very quickly under Nixon, so Johnson, you know, leaves in 1968, Nixon picks up and he wants a big centralized celebration as, as well, um, but not necessarily, not necessarily for these kind of great society reasons, right? He wants it. He wants it as part of a way to shore up consent, um, as part of a, as a patriotic ex, um, expression that can sort of unify Americans, which, which by this point, you know, Americans need. Um, by 1968, things are somewhat contentious. So, in the Nixon administration's eye, the idea is is that if we do a big central bicentennial, um, a big World's Fair that shows Americans and the rest of the world. Um, how, how great everything is, um, the sort of the great history of America then, and, the, and the present and the future, um, then that, that will be good. So in, in true Nixonian style, he like really micromanages it. Uh, so he appoints all of his people onto the Bicentennial Commission. Um, there is a moment too, and I don't, I don't think I talk about this that much in the book, but he had all the cabinet members be ex officio members of the national of the Bicentennial Commission too. So this is really important to him as a kind of expression of other things that he's trying to do. He renames his 1972 presidential campaign federalism 76. Um, so there's tie-ins there as well. But of course, things fall apart. By the 1970s, no one can really imagine a big central, big centralized celebration anymore because there's no consensus. Um, so, in order for everyone to agree what they're celebrating, you know, in order to have this big kind of celebration that Nixon and Johnson were envisioning, that the classic World's Fair is, you have to have consent. Um, you have to have consensus. 
And that's not really the case at this point anymore. So really quickly, there's a lot of, there's a sort of a lot of um, critique and blowback from people who are not supporting the bicentennial, whether those are different. So there, there's a kind of new left group called the People's Bicentennial Commission, which I write about a lot later, springs up. But a lot of other groups are also start protesting the bicentennial. There's a minor scandal um, where a disgruntled member of the Bicentennial Commission leaks these papers to a Washington Post journalist, and it's revealed that Nixon is sort of trying to appropriate the Bicentennial for commercial terms. So he's sort of selling Bicentennial licensing um, to various corporate interests. So what the response of the Nixon administration is to this ultimately is that they decide that the Bicentennial is going to be grassroots, that the Bicentennial Commission, instead of planning this, you know, great big centralized Bicentennial, what they're going to do is they're going to sort of help coordinate a thousand little bicentennials all over the country. So the states, cities, communities um, end up planning their own bicentennials. And then what the central commission does is that it sort of keeps tracks of all of them and also gives them funding. And that's important. So that's the way that the bicentennial looks by the end. So bicentennial that we see in 1976, um, or even that we start seeing by 1973, 1974, bears very little resemblance to the bicentennial that they planned in 1966 and 1968, but to any other commemoration that had happened previously. So in this case, the the form of the celebration ends up kind of following its larger, more constructed context. Right. Because, because of this... We see this change. You talk about this sort of change in how um, the interest in history and then how people start to preserve history and and do this in different ways. And so can you talk about how you look at and how you think about that redefinition of preservation and preservation of history and some of the ways that you saw this be occurring during this sort of time period? Yeah, right. So... One of the ways that I try to talk about this shift is that I say that we move from what I would call a sort of cultural logic of of preservation to a cultural logic of reenactment. Um, And so what I mean is that I'm really trying to expand, um, or at least for the purposes of this book, I'm trying to expand the definitions of both preservation or reenactment. So preservation for me means sort of any kind of act of preserving. So, and there's, there's, it's centered around artifacts, for example. Um, It's centered around an object holding all of the history and the sort of historical activity is organized around this object. And so by that, I can mean housing preservation. Um, So the preservation of built structures, a lot of changes happen in the preservation movement in the 1970s. Um, It can mean, Oral history, to me, is a type of preservation as well, and also the preservation of artifacts and collecting. And all three of these change, um, but they they keep and they start sort of getting elements of sort of emotional involvement of telling different kinds of stories. Um, but at the same time, they we stop we stop having preservation be. I argue the kind of main way or the most predominant way that we think about history and it moves to something that I call reenactment to which I mean sort of emotional embodied immersive, immersive engagements with the past. So when a reenactment can be a historical reenactment and there are tons of these done around the bicentennial, 
it can be living history, but it can also be a museum exhibition. Um, and there are tons of these sort of starting up at this time as well, where you are expected to kind of you're placed inside a historical environment. So here in DC, for example, the Smithsonian did a very famous show called 1876, where they essentially recreated a part of the 1876 World's Fair at the Arts and Industries Building. And so the idea was, is that you're learning about what 1876 was like, not by engaging with artifacts or by reading labels, by sort of walking through it and feeling what it might have been like. So to me, that's what reenactment is. Right. And you talk about, I'm going to come, I want to come back to the Afro-American Bicentennial Corporation, but you mentioned um, DC and 1876. And I found that really interesting. I lived in Philadelphia for about 20 years. Oh, yeah. So you're right there. (laughs) Right. And so, yes. So this is in my uh, husband had grown up in Philly. So we were talking about all the things he remembers from the bicentennial there. But also you talked about the Ben Franklin and the the sort of Franklin house and the phones and all of that at the at, um, Franklin court. And, the you know, the so I and I've been to those phones and I've been to that space. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about um that those ideas and what you were seeing and how they were this this talk a little bit more about that living history and that sort of creation of these sort of spaces right so one thing that you see around this time as a kind of symptom of the of the changes that I'm talking about is that you see as I mentioned a lot more of these immersive exhibits um, and that might mean museum exhibits that emotionally engage you that use artifacts in different ways but you also see at this moment a lot of multimedia so museums are really using audio visual recordings um, scrims video for, for the first time in really, really creative ways. And that is, you know, if you, if you flesh that out a little bit, the 1970s are the decade of personal media. So that's, that's one more way that you can connect these kind of changes to, to larger, to larger contexts. But the Franklin, Franklin court is in Philadelphia. It is the site of Ben Franklin's house in Philadelphia. The problem is, is that the house had been torn down and for a long time, nobody know what, knew what to do with the site. So through the 60s, um, park services worked with worked with uh, Robert Venturi, who's the postmodernist architect, and put a ghost house there. Um, so at the site itself, you have this really wonderful kind of outline, an outline of a house what you have under it is an underground museum. And I was really lucky because it's recently been renovated. So there's a brand new museum at Franklin Court that I haven't had a chance to go to yet. But I got to go when I was working on this in its dissertation form um, and tour this like perfect time capsule of, of a museum exhibit from the 1970s. It basically hadn't been changed. So I got to use the phones too, which was really exciting. <laughs> And just, yeah, uh, it's remind me in a moment to talk more about what it's like to research stuff like this. But this was one case. Um, usually I'm working, I'm trying to work backwards and recreate something from its records, uh, which is hard when you're thinking about emotion and immersion and all these things, because working with an archive is the opposite of that. But in this case, I actually had to immerse myself. Um, and so what they did is that they have this amazing exhibit there called the Franklin Exchange. And what the Franklin Exchange is, is it's basically a phone bank. Um, and what the phone, the phone bank, the panel above the phone bank says, like, 
Well, you know, one of the things that Ben Franklin liked doing is exchanging ideas with people. And so during his lifetime, he wrote a lot of letters. But if he was still, if he was alive today, what he would be doing is he'd be on the phone all the time. So it has this. And so what the Franklin Exchange is, is it's just a big list of phone numbers. And the phone numbers are all correct. Um, And they're for people who were both his contemporaries and his actual interlocutors. um, And then it's people who had written about him. Um, So, for example, if you call George Washington, he has a 703 number, which is the exchange for Virginia. If you call someone in Europe, then you have to dial like 15 numbers. And these are all rotary phones, too. And at least half of them were rotary phones in the early 2010s as well. So that's exciting. Um, No, it's yes. (laughs) Like, but that, you know, thinking about that and thinking about I thought it was really, you know, when I went, when I would go, it's fun and it's quirky and cute. Right. But that how innovative that probably was at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's doing something really, especially in the 1970s, it's doing something really unusual. First of all, it's making you think of Franklin as a person, um, but also think about what, you know, relate more closely to him. So maybe you have no idea what it would have been like to be a person sitting around and writing letters all the time. Um, but you can certainly think about what it's like to be on the phone. But it's also, it's a really, I mean, telephones are really sort of personal. So what happens is you dial one of these people um, and then a recording and then a recording picks up and it says whatever, whatever the quote is that the person says about, about Benjamin Franklin and then it hangs up. Um, so one way to read it is that they don't know how to use the telephone. <laughs> So they've been kind of like brought back um, in a weird way as well. But it is, but even like, you know, listening to this person's or listening to what's supposedly this person's voice, it's a very kind of intimate, um, immersive, interactive experience. And one that puts forth a different idea of Franklin or what Franklin, Franklin could be or used to be. Right. Um, and so sort of shifting gears or moving from that, I, you talk a bit about the Afro-American Bicentennial Corporation um, as one of these sort of um, offshoots. I don't know if that's the best term for this sort of federal um, bicentennial movement. And, and the fact that often history is very complicated if you are not in the those who are usually telling the history. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the the ABC and what it did and sort of its role in um, some of this preservation of history. Right. So one thing that I realized fairly quickly about the bicentennial and as soon as, and especially this kind of decentralized bicentennial that was mostly a funding agent um, than anything else is that a lot of people sort of saw this as an opportunity to do their own projects and get, get financial support for it. Um, and the Afro-American Bicentennial Corporation was just one of these things. These are two brothers, Vincent and Robert DeForest, who had started out as, um, as SNCC activists. So they, they came to DC as civil rights activists. Um, and they noticed really quickly that there are very few sites on the National Register of Historic Places. So I mentioned to you already that this is a moment um, where people are becoming more interested in historic preservation. One of the reasons that this is happening sort of writ large is as a kind of reaction um, against, against sort of massive urban redevelopment in the post-war period. So by the 1960s, you have people who don't want highways coming through their cities, who are getting tired of brutalism. Um, So all of a sudden, they get really interested in historic places. So all across the board, there's a kind of surge in 
there's a surge in preservation activity um, and there's a surge in kind of meanings that are attached to preservation activity. But the DeForest brothers are look at, look at the national register of historic places and say, none of these sites are engaging African-American history. Um, I think the only one on there at that point was Frederick Douglass's house. Um, so they, they said they get a government grant, they get a grant first from Park Services and Department of Interior, um, and then later from the Bicentennial Commission um, to go around and identify identify sites that are sites that are reflecting the African-American experience. Um, so one of the most famous sites that they save in D.C. is the Mount Zion Cemetery. So this is an African-American cemetery in Georgetown. Georgetown, which is now a sort of exclusive shopping neighborhood, was for a very long time an African-American neighborhood. And the cemetery was in disrepair. And so the DeForest brothers um, helped the descendants, helped the descendants locate it, or they knew about it already, but they helped the descendants save it from development um, and sort of bring, bring attention or wider attention to that history of Georgetown. Um, they located a lot of sites, but I think the fact that they call themselves the Afro-American Bicentennial Corporation is significant because the reason that they did this is because they didn't see themselves reflected in the kind of federal bicentennial. Um, so one of the sort of things that happens once the bicentennial becomes a kind of more grassroots effort is that more and more people find meaning in it, more and more people find places for themselves in it. Um, so the DeForest Brothers... You know, at some point they go and testify. Um, so when when all this like, corruption of the Nixon era bicentennial commission um, is brought to the fore, there's there's a Senate hearing about budgeting, uh, and the DeForest brothers go and testify. And one of the things they say is, "Well, we didn't see anything for ourselves in the programming that they were planning, so we decided to start our own bicentennial corporation." Um, but I see them as you know important actors in this kind of wider redefinition of history, um, that the preservation that they're doing is really personal. Um, it's politicized. So they make a lot, you know, they do a lot of interviews um, and a lot of they're talking about how important the work that they're doing is um, for helping African-Americans feel a sense of history, um, that by recovering these spaces, that's what's happening. And that's why it's important. Right. And so another way that you talk about that we sort of see this recovering of history um, comes in the reenactment, right? right? The reenactment and how we do that and, and sort of the changes in how people start to think about reenactment. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the, the role of reenactment and, and sort of those changes in the seventies and what was going on at that time. Right. So one of the thing, I mean, I, one of the things that I noticed right away when I started looking, really looking at what bicentennial programming looked like um, by the, by the early to mid seventies is that there were a lot of reenactments, big and small. So all of a sudden, all of these bicentennial communities, um, all of these different agents were interested in doing living history. Um, so whether that is a nationwide project. So for example, I spent a lot of time writing about this thing called the bicentennial wagon train in which these Conestoga wagons traveled from, from West to East to Valley board, Pennsylvania for an entire year, but they dressed in costume um, and sort of created this visual, you know, this, this, this visual record um, or this visual approximation or reenactment of, of westward, of westward movement, um, except they did the day to East. But you had a lot of really smaller, so for example, um, a teacher, a school teacher named Reed Lewis and a bunch of his students from Elgin, Illinois, um, reenacted the, the 
Marquette expedition. Um, some, some people in Tahiti reenacted a canoe trip, uh, a lot of really different kinds. And, you know, and that doesn't even count all the little local reenactments um, by local historical societies. So you have, a, you have a lot of living history going on. In the world of museum living history, things are changing too. So living history sites like Colonial Williamsburg, like Old Sturbridge Village, um, like Plymouth Plantation are moving from being, you know, very tidy um, and doing what's called third person interpretation and telling stories of only the sort of most, most wealthy and famous residents of Williamsburg, for example, to doing living history that was much more interested in the everyday experience of doing kind of more immersive, more interactive living history. Finally, too, you have a big movement in historical in historical agriculture. So an organization called ALFAM, the Association, Association for Living History, Farms and Museums, um, comes to the fore in 1970, and that reflects the growth by that organization, I think, by 1972 or 1973, approximates that there's almost a thousand living history farms across the United States. So you just think there's, there's something, what I noticed at first, that there's, there, there's something in the water. Um, all of a sudden, everybody's really interested in this embodied history. And what I end up arguing is, is that it's connected to, you know, the Franklin Exchange or the 1876 exhibition that the Smithsonian does, um, or even Roots. It's about embodiment. It's about living history. It's about, you know, as the title of the book says, history comes alive. That's the form of engagement with the past that I think Americans relate to the most at this moment. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I was in grade school in the late seventies and then the early eighties. And, and again, in Minnesota, and we would go to like Fort Snelling or we would go to these different, you know, you do the historical tour where you go and you meet the people who are acting like they are very much living at that time period. You, you can only ask questions about that time period. Um, and so this made me think about how the, like probably very, that had just recently sort of started and began and being part of that and growing up with that sort of experience and what there was one point where you think you talked about a whole school that um, did taught like one day a week, they did uh, like schooling and back to the 1800s kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, That's, that's, you know, and again, again, this is part of every, everyone finding their own way to, engage with history during the bicentennial period. So yeah, this school, and I don't remember off the top of my head now where it was, um, is yeah, they tried to, they, they, one day a week for the entire year of 1976, they, um, they, they sort of did classes and did the day as a 19th century school would have. Um, so they wore dunce caps. They learned through rote memorization. I think the boys and the girls were separated, but they all, you know, they, they felt like they learned a lot and they really liked it. Right. Um, And so the other thing you sort of bring up and talk about, too, is um, the role of activism that came about with some of these, some of the ways in which they were sort of planning for historical um, or bicentennial celebrations. And so can you talk a bit about um, that that activism side and what was going on there? Right. So this is. This is the last chapter. Um, so, so one of one of the kind of as I said before, I think the stakes of this change is that 
when people start identifying with the past um, and thinking about the past in more sort of emotional, um, empathetic ways, then the past sort of has more valence for how their own identity formation, right? So if you're grappling with issues in your life um, and thinking thinking deeply about how the past relates to the present, um, then right there you see a lot of opportunity for activism. So the last chapter looks at um, different history projects that had activists sort of had activist ends. So one of the groups that I look at is this People's Bicentennial Commission, which sprung up in response to what they saw as the co- corruption of the Nixon era Federal Bicentennial Commission, and they were trying to get people sort of democratically engaged in different ways um, by by saying that, hey, you're the real revolutionaries. It's not the you know president and the current administration that's the heirs to the revolution. It's you. And what you should be doing is looking at around you and and sort of trying to make a difference. Uh, so that, that was one group. I also talk um, about the way that the American Indian movement sort of saw the saw the bicentennial as a chance to bring attention to the sort of erased history of Native Americans. So in the bicentennial, they don't talk about this at all by the bicentennial commission. I mean, um, but the American movement, uh, Indian movement, said, "What are we celebrating? We're celebrating essentially sort of an imp- imperial action, um, a hostile action, and so." For them, the bicentennial became a moment to look at the mainstream history and look at the way that it had erased Native Americans. Right. And you do the same thing, too, looking at the Black Panther Party as well and sort of what they were sort of pushing for um, with their what they called the lost colonies. Is that... Oh, there was a there was a bicentennial without colonies, which actually American Indian movement was part of too. So there was so even though the People's Bicentennial Commission sort of portrayed themselves as the the leftist alternative to the mainstream bicentennial, there was actually a more radical left coalition called the Bicentennial Without Colonies, which and the argument that they're making is that okay, the People's Bicentennial Commission is not actually sort of looking critically at the history of the American revolution it's just making a point about who should identify with it. Um, the bicentennial without colonies was thinking more about the legacy of the American revolution, again, as a sort of imperialist action um, that had over the next 200 years reverberations for many, many people. And so the Black Panther Party was a part of this. American Indian Movement was part of this. And they ended up having an alternative bicentennial in Philadelphia um, on July 4th that, again, tried to bring attention to what they thought of as the kind of hypocrisy of the mainstream bicentennial and even the hypocrisy of the People's Bicentennial Commission. Right. And so so we have all this going on and you sort of conclude and I heard that I remember hearing this, the, the this American life that you talk about. Right. You, right. So you sort of bring us back to sort of what's going on now and how this has sort of impacted us today. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of some of those conclusions or what you've concluded and come to from looking at these changes that were being made throughout history, especially coalescing in the 1970s? Yeah. So the kind of point I want to make at the end of this is the point that I think I made at the very beginning to you, which is that 
we take we tend to take this form of history, which I'm arguing was pretty new in the 1970s, is by at this point we tend to take it for granted. We demand, you know, emo- we demand emotional emotional valences. We demand sort of personal interactions, immersion, uh, interactivity from all of our historical engagements. So one example of that is, for example, all these like kind of video games like Call of Duty that put you into put you into historical environments, but more formally museums and historical sites do this a lot too. I don't think that I can't remember the last time I haven't been to a museum exhibit that, that didn't have some element of sort of interactivity or immersion um, or trying to bring you into the narrative in various ways. So my favorite, my favorite, my favorite example from this is the Ronald Reagan presidential library has an exhibit in the, it that's a sort of met for children for school aged children, um, where they go through the steps that Ronald Reagan and his cabinet took to um, to to make to decide to invade Granada in 1983. And so what happens is they have a little scale model of or a three fourth scale, so it fit, it fits like a ten year old kid or a group of ten year old kids of the Oval Office. And it's so realistic that they have a little jar of jelly beans on the desk. because That's what Reagan had. You can eat the jelly beans. Um, and so the kids have studied this in school um, and, but they are placed, they're placed into the situation. They're all assigned members. They're all assigned sort of roles to play of Reagan and his cabinet. And they go through the series of decisions necessary to, to make this call to decide to invade Granada. Um, so the, this American life reporter follows several groups of kids and they all go through, they go all go through this process. And in the end she asks them what it felt like. And they're all like, well, you know, it's, I bet it was a hard decision, but I agree with Reagan. I see now what he had to do. This is a really great way to learn about history. But there's this other group of kids that they, they keep on making the wrong decisions. And apparently in this, in this interactive, when you make the decision that does, isn't commensurate with the decision that Reagan made, um, like a big, a big buzzer, rings to make sure that you know uh, that you've made the wrong decision but these kids are resolute and they decide in the end not to invade um and at the end they're like you know we think that maybe things have gone differently if we had if reagan had made the decision that way that we did so the point that i want to make is that this is you know this is the potential of embodied history it's not that i'm arguing that it's better or worse than other forms of historical engagement but it opens up a different set of possibilities um, that on one hand can be used to reinforce narratives um, by giving people sort of empathetic connections to them but on the other hand it can it's a sort of strong tool to to make people make their own decisions, um, to really think critically about the past in different ways. And so, again, that's, that's to me one of the other stakes of the book. Right. One of the things that, in reading your book, it made me think of uh, the use of reacting to the past. Mm-hmm. The, that um, I have a friend who uses that in yes. her classroom and uses that with her students. Um, she teaches political science and political theory, and she's found that a really great way to get students to really be involved in like what was going on. And sometimes they do make the wrong decisions, right? They end up losing the game because they don't make the decisions that were um, made historically. Yeah. I've never done reacting to the past. It's a lot of commitment. Um, You have to really, and I haven't maybe taught the right class for it yet. 
a few of my colleagues, um, I, I'm an American university now. I used to be at Eastern Illinois University. And my colleagues, Stacey Elder and, and Brian Mann, used to teach reacting to the past. Um, one did Greenwich Village at the beginning of the 20th century, which I love. I love this concept. And the other one did um, Indian Independence. And I observed a lot of them um, and they were really, really interesting. And these students were really engaging in really interesting ways. So I hope I get a chance. To, yeah. Whenever, whenever I see one of those, I'm like, ah, right. But, um, but yeah, I, I hope I get a chance to do one of those one day, but I think, yeah, I think they're really terrific and there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm a big fan of Emma Goldman and one of the ones she did has Emma Goldman. Yeah. So she's like, this is who's playing my Emma Goldman. So she would tell me about her Emma Goldman and how great he was. So I was like, yes. Yeah, I think I saw that. No, the Greenwich Village one is wonderful because it's usually when you see it in history books, it's so dry. And I think you don't really understand what free love, for example, or anarchy might have been, you know, Mm -hmm. in the midst of progressivism. But yeah, watching this come alive is really, really cool. Yeah. So reading this, it made me think of that. And, and, you know, she's a political theorist. So she talks a lot about sort of American exceptionalism and these sort of tenets that we have or that we have sort of invested in as an American people. And so it reminded me of how much that is now embedded into even, yes, a curricular and programming that we use to engage students in history and in our histories. So we've been talking for a while about your book. And so I'm wondering if before we sort of end, if there's anything you're working on now that you want to promote or talk about. I'm working on a few different things. Um, so I so I moved back to D.C. two years ago and I have become very involved and I grew up in D.C. Um, so I love this city and I've become very involved in local history, which has been really exciting. So I've been doing a lot of I guess history that's closer to the sort of community history that I write about, which has been really interesting. I'm also working on I'm in the very preliminary stages of a new project that's about time capsules and time capsules in the 20th century. So there's been a kind of time capsule. There's, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of time capsules around the bicentennial. Um, but I've also also had a sideline interest in World's Fairs, and there have been time capsules at World's Fairs too. And I noticed that nobody has really sort of grappled with what that means, um, and particularly again for me, you know, in the in the post-war period. So I'm beginning to do that kind of work. I started out. I've been looking to at a arts collective called Ant Farm. So this is a interdisciplinary collective of artists that was working out of San Francisco in the 1970s. One of the things that they're most known for is something called Cadillac Ranch, which is an installation Mm -hmm. in in Amarillo, Texas um, that they did in 1974, which I think is a really interesting kind of preservation. Um, But they also did several time capsules. So I was going through their archive, which I held at Berkeley and I saw all these projects and it kind of launched me, launched me down, launched me down this path. So I think there's a lot of num- there's a number of really interesting things that are kind of moving out of this project for me. So I am looking forward to looking forward to continuing to dig into this. Interesting. Well, it's been really great talking to you again. This was MJ Rimsha Pabluski with oh, History wow. Comes Alive, Public History and Popular Culture in the 1970s. Thanks for talking with me, MJ. Thank you so much. It's been great having this conversation. Thanks for having me on here.